Let's stand together, and uh, today is, uh, we're going to be talking out of the book of Luke on salt, remembering Lot's wife. And we've got a long text to read. Um, I'm going to read the blue, you're going to read the, um, the white. Um, and uh, so it's from Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, and it's verses 20 to, 30, uh, to 37. And this is what is said, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. And they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And on that day, let one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Great reading. Turn the heat off. Let's pray. Father, again. We are so grateful and thankful for the exhibition and the generosity and the extravagant expression of your love in, through, and as Jesus Christ. And Father, that you give us then the Holy Spirit to take what you've done in Christ and make it possible, available, and applicable to our lives. And so we ask now again, Lord, as we ask so often, every week, that your Holy Spirit would give us a voice to speak, that you would give us ears to hear, hearts to understand, minds to comprehend, and particularly the strength, the wisdom, the discernment, the courage to go out into our world, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, places where we work, places where we get our education, where we buy and get our services and all the other places that we live our lives, that we may live out in tangible, meaningful ways what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. And in his name, we ask these mercies. Amen. 
Why don't you be seated? So salt, remembering Lot's wife. Now the context is that the Pharisees come to Jesus and they are asking him, what is the sign of the coming of the kingdom of God? And of course, Jesus says a couple of things that he says, first of all, it's going to be like it was in the days of Noah, that in general, that life is just going to go on as usual. There will be nothing out of the norm. And like it was in the days of Lot, where nothing is unusual, that life just continues. That's sort of the context. But where I want us to start this morning is a couple of quotes from the Irish statesman Edmund Burke that you've heard before. The first one is this. Those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. Those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. And the second one is this, and you've heard this one as well. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men, and he said only men, but I added women, to do nothing. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. Now, I would like us this morning to keep those two quotes, those two ideas in the filing cabinet of our mind as we go through our text. Now, in order to really understand what Jesus meant by remember Lot's wife, then we have to know some of the history, Genesis 13, Genesis 18, Genesis 19. If you've got a Bible or you've got a tablet or device and you want to go there, feel free. But it all begins in Genesis chapter 13 with a separation from righteousness. And Genesis 13 is about a story of struggle and strife. Now, I'm going to do something again this morning that I did to you last week, is that I am going to throw a lot of Bible text at us this morning. So uh, it's not in your notes, but it will be on the screen, and you can follow along in your Bible or your tech or your device, whatever it is, uh, but a lot of Bible text. And to compensate for that, next week there will be no Bible text. Just kidding. Genesis chapter 13 says these words, verses 5 to 9 says, And Lot, who went with Abraham, also had flocks and herds and tents, and so that the land could not support both them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, let there be no strife between you and me, between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. It is not the whole land before you. Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will take the right. If you take the right hand, then I'll take the left. And so what we see here is that Lot gets the first pick of anything that he wants, and he does that. And then comes what I call a sequence of steps. Now, Genesis chapter 13, verses 10 to 13, we read these words. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw. Now, the obvious question before we go any further is, well, how else could he see? But the point here is understanding that there is a looking with the eyes of sight, and there is a looking with the eyes of faith. 
We can look with the eyes that are in our heads, or as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1.18, that we can look and see with the eyes of our hearts. And so it says, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. Now, this was before God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus, they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And so it begins that the separation of righteousness begins with looking. And then there is this, there is the leaving. Now, the one thing that Lot has going for himself is his uncle Abraham and his relationship and his connection with Abraham. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Abraham is the personification of righteousness. And so Abraham, or rather Lot separating himself from Uncle Abraham is really where the separation of righteousness begins. And then there's this, the lifting up of the eyes. Now, there's a play on words here. In Genesis chapter 13, verse 10, and Genesis 13, 14, we read these words. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere. And then we read these words about Abraham, or Abram. And the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are. Now, the play on words is simply this. The understanding here is that it was Lot that lifted his own eyes. And he saw what he wanted and he took it. But the inference is that while Lot lifted his own eyes, Abraham or Abram the Lord lifted his eyes. And the separation of, from righteousness, the separation from righteousness almost always is a sequence of steps in the other direction. If we follow the sequence of Lot's steps, we can connect the dots of how Lot's separation from righteousness influences not just his actions, but ultimately his life and his family. I want you to watch this. Watch the sequence. First of all, verse 12 of Genesis 13 says that Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Step one, Lot is living near Sodom. And then we read in Genesis 14, verse 12, Lot, the son of Abram's brother, was dwelling in Sodom. So the first step is he's living near Sodom. The next step is that he's living in Sodom. And then we come to Genesis chapter 19, verse 1, where we read these words. 
And the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the city gate. So first, Lot is living near Sodom. The next thing, he is living in Sodom. And then thirdly, the third step is that he is sitting in the city gate in Sodom. Now, what that simply means, sitting in the city gate, is that Lot was a member of the city council. He was a person of influence, he was a person of power, and he was considered an elder. Now, normally, normally, this is a good thing. God calls us as Christians, as his people, to infiltrate the various facets of culture and society. But problems arise when we begin to lose our influence for righteousness' sake and we become what Jesus says. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And we know from the text that in Lot's case, the latter is the reality. Now this then brings us to the silence of righteousness and to Genesis 19 in a couple of moments. Instead of being an influencer for righteousness' sake, Lot has been assimilated into the society and culture of Sodom. And this leads to and results in the silencing of Lot. Now remember our quote, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women to do nothing. To do nothing. Now here is a city, Sodom, that is slated by God to be wiped off the map because of its sin. And Lot is assimilated into it. His righteousness has been nullified. His righteousness has been suppressed. His righteousness has been stifled. And in our text of Luke 17, Jesus gives us two examples that we've already noted. In verse 26, it says, as it was in the days of Noah. And then in verse 28, likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot. One righteous, Noah, and one not so righteous, Lot. Now, but Lot is not at the place where he is completely unrighteous. Because we know that 2 Peter 2.7 calls or refers to him as righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. But we read these words of Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 17, his great high priestly prayer on the eve of his crucifixion, where Jesus says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. But Lot is too much 
in the world. And we will see this more clearly in a couple of moments by his distorted judgment and his surprising compromise. But let's fast forward and let's get to Lot's wife because that's what our text is about. So what's the deal on Lot's wife? I'm going to read for you an abridged version of Genesis chapter 19, verses 1 to 38. And this is what it says. Now, before we read it, let's everybody just sort of put our seatbelts on and recognize that Genesis chapter 19 is one of the most ugliest and difficult texts in the entire Bible. It's just difficult and it's ugly. There's no other way to say it. So just be prepared for that as we read it. Some of you know exactly what's there, but this is what it says. And the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the city gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night. The men of Sodom surrounded the house, and they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we may know them. 21st century translation, that we may molest them, that we may have sex with them. Lot went out to the man at the entrance and shut the door after him, and he said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. But the men, the angels, the Bible refers to them as men, struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, Then the angels said to Lot, Have you anyone else here? Sons-in-laws, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city, bring bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-laws who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-laws... To be jesting. And as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, Up, take your wife and your daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him, the angel seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, and the Lord, the Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills lest you be swept away. And then the Lord rained rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and became a pillar of salt. Now, we don't know a lot about Lot's wife, no pun intended there. 
But Lot's wife is always and only referred to as Lot's wife. Sadly, she has no identity of her own. She has no individual identity. Her identity is as Lot's wife. And the other thing that we know about her is that she looked back and she became a pillar of salt. That's all that we know about her. Now, looks speak. Um, Spouses, have you ever gotten the look? Hey, uh, kids, teenagers, um, ever gotten the look from your parents? Uh, Hey, parents, have you ever gotten the look from your kids? The look says it all. You know, there doesn't need to be a kicking under the table or anything. It's just a look. And nobody else picks it up but the other partner. The look. I've gotten the look. But I've never given the look. (laughs) And if you believe that, I have this bridge. What was it about her look? Was it that she looked back and wanted to see the city burn? Or was it that she doubted that if this was really going to happen at all? Or did she look back with yearning and longing? Now, most people think that she looked back with longing at what she was leaving behind, and because of that, she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now, we could say it this way, that Sodom had attached itself to her heart, and she had become attached to Sodom, that she really did not want to leave. And when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about Jesus' words where he says, for where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. So Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Now I want you to put your seatbelt on for a little moment. And I want you to read, I want to read a quote from Frederick Beekner, and it's a tongue-in-cheek quote, I think. And he says this. It was a dismal fate, to be sure. But when you consider all the years of marriage to Lot that would probably have been in store for her otherwise, she may not have done all that bad. Now, what Beekner means is this, is that Lot is a piece of work. For example, when the thugs show up at Lot's front door, pounding on the door, wanting the angels to come out to him, Lot's thought is this, hey, don't do this to these angels, but I have got two daughters who have never, ever been with a man. Why don't I bring them out to you instead, and you can do with them whatever you want. He thought that was okay. And the angels, of course, did not. 
they thought that this gesture that, that Lot was making was a little bit overboard when it came to the laws of hospitality. So before Lot could make good on his offer, of course, the angels struck the, the men at the door blind and they, groped, they began to grope themselves back to wherever it is they came from. But there's also this. Lot is a piece of work. Verse 15 says, as morning dawned, as morning dawned, the angels urged Lot saying, up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. And then it says in verse 16, but he lingered. He lingered. Now, let me ask us a question. Have you ever lingered too long? Have you ever lingered longer than was necessary? Have you ever lingered reluctant to let go of something or someone? And you've lingered too long? I know that I have in the past, but he lingered. The clock is ticking. The countdown is on. There's not a second to lose, and Lot still has not gotten himself out of town. And the Bible tells us that it wasn't until the angels, the angels actually had to grab a hold of him and probably shake some sense in him and take him and, his, and Mrs. Lot and the daughters outside the city. Now, Lot and Lot's wife suggests what happens when we separate ourselves from righteousness and when righteousness separates itself from us. And this is the effect that the world can have on us. The attraction and the attachment of the world is both subtle and it is strong. It erodes, it corrodes, it absorbs us until we are rendered spiritually impotent powerless. It is the proverbial frog in the pot. You know the story and the experiment. They put a frog in the pot. I have no idea why. And in cool water and they turn up the temperature. And as the water temperature rises, the frog adjusts. And they raise it some more and the water gets warmer and the frog adjusts. And then again, and the frog adjusts until finally the frog is cooked to death. And that's the idea here is that the world is seductive and anesthetizing. Now, there are only two reasons why Lot escapes. The first one and foremost is Genesis 19:16, where it says, the Lord being merciful to him. It was only God's mercy that rescued him. 
and the second being the supplication or the prayer of righteousness. Now, this brings us back to Genesis chapter 18 and to Abraham. And this is what it says. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come up to me, and if not, I'll know. And so the men turned from there, the angels, and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, verse 22 contains one of the most powerful statements about anybody and one of the most powerful statements in the Bible. And it says this. So the angels turned from where they, from there, and they went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. And then we pick it up again in verse 23 of Genesis 18. And you know this, many of you. And then Abraham drew near and said to God, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it, or rather far be that from you shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just. And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And the story goes on, the text goes on, that Abraham says, and what if there are 45? And then he goes down, and what if there are 40? Will you spare it for 40? What if there are 30? Will you spare it for 30? What if there are 20? Will you spare it for 20? What if there are only 10? Will you spare it for 10? And the answer comes back, God says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. Lot may have lost his influence for righteousness' sake, but Uncle Abraham had not. Edmund Burke said, those who don't know history are destined to repeat it. And Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men and women 
to do nothing. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes because I want to pray. And we're going to be finished in just a couple of minutes. I'm going to ask you musicians to come and play just quietly. But I want to pray. Father, thank you for your word. Sometimes the Bible is hard to read. And it's hard to listen to being read. Because there are some things in the Bible that are just hard to take. And they're hard to hear. But Father, today, there is a lesson for every one of us. So Father, I pray now that this would be a place of holy ground. I pray right now, Father, that the Holy Spirit the spirit of Jesus Christ, the spirit of truth, the spirit of conviction, would not only invade this room in a fresh way, but would invade our hearts, our lives, my heart, our hearts. Father, today, possibly in this room, and those online who have are one step beyond Lot, that they've already separated themselves from righteousness. And it's just now, this morning, that they're beginning to imagine and understand the influence and the repercussions of that separation in their lives and in their lives of their loved ones and families. Father, there are those today in this room and watching online who may be in Lot's situation. They are in the process of separating themselves from righteousness. And we don't even know it. It's subtle. It's a slow boil. But we are becoming desensitized. The things we would have never thought of doing, we do. And the things that we thought we would never not do, we stop doing. And Father, there are those of us that in a small way fit into the category of Abraham. Righteous. But the call is to open our eyes and to be alert, to be diligent. Because the days are evil. So we give you praise. We give you thanks. Now, Father, whatever category it is that we find ourselves in, Holy Spirit, do the work that only you can do. Only you can speak to my heart. Only you can open my eyes, the eyes of my heart, the eyes of faith. 
Only you, Father, by your Spirit. Only you. So with our heads bowed, our eyes closed, nobody's looking around. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. I'm going to trust today that the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart as he's speaking to mine. But we're in the room or we're watching online and we find ourselves in the first category. And we have separated ourselves from righteousness. And the problems and the difficulties that have come into our lives because we've separated ourselves from righteousness, that we have drifted. And we are adrift. Those problems are a direct, indirect correlation to our spiritual state. Maybe in the room today, online, you're in the second category. That we're not unrighteous. We're just slowly, subtly drifting. The process of separating ourselves from righteousness is underway in our lives. And today, the Spirit of God is speaking to our hearts and saying, pay attention, wake up, come home, come back. And then there are those, most assuredly, thankfully, in the third category, who we identify with Abraham more than anybody else, where you know that you're not adrift, and you know that you haven't drifted or drifting. But the call of God today is to be alert, wake up, be diligent. For you and I are no more less susceptible to the subtlety of the world. I don't know who's in what category, and that's not my business. That's you and God. But I'm going to ask Pastor Scott and the team just to sing a little bit of that song, Oh, Come to the Altar, it might be appropriate. And I, I'm just going to ask you to stay in the position you're in. And let's just take a couple of minutes and let the Spirit of God speak to us about our own life situation. And if repentance is needed, then repentance it is. But listen. Listen to the voice of the Spirit as He speaks to us. It. Jesus is calling. Now you come to the end of yourself. 
Father, Father, we are aware. Jesus is calling. You're calling us this morning. And nobody but ourselves, between ourselves and you, know where we're at. But you're calling us today. And everyone in the room, and everyone online fits in one of those three categories. So Father, I pray in the name of Jesus, while your arms are open wide, forgiveness is bought. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Come, Spirit of the Lord, and have your way amongst us that we may be the people of God. Holy, and righteous and just. In Christ's name, amen. Let me finish with this. Over the 33 years of pastoral ministry, a person who God has used to heal my pastoral soul has been a man by the name of Eugene Peterson. You have heard me quote him many times. The first book I ever read by Eugene Peterson was, I picked it up when I was visiting my dad when he was recovering from cancer surgery, which eight months later he would die. That's the first book I ever read. And since that time, every time I pastorally get discouraged or become frustrated and I want to quit, I turn to Eugene Peterson and God 
heals me and straightens me out and returns my love for the people of God and the church and pastoral ministry. Eugene Peterson died October 22nd this past month and uh, his funeral was last Saturday. And this man has been a great influence to me and I must confess to you that I am grieving his loss. That may seem strange or you may understand that, it doesn't matter. I listened to his funeral online a couple of times because there was something said. But there was something said by Eugene Peterson's youngest son. And he gave a eulogy of his dad and he said, for 50 years, my dad has only had one message. One message. And he said he has disseminated that in books and Bibles and all that kind of stuff around the world. But he said, there's only one message that my dad ever had. He said, I can remember laying in bed at night and my dad would come in and whisper it over my sleeping body. He assumed I was sleeping. And he said, Peterson's son said, this was my dad's lifelong message. And it's the message that I want us to hear this morning at the conclusion of this service. It's this. God loves you. Do you hear it? God loves you. God is on your side. And he is coming after you. He's coming after you. And he is relentless. And I say, come after us, Lord. Be relentless. Amen, church? Amen. Amen.